Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Apostasy part 2. Apostasy part 2. You don't often have that as your sermon title, do you? Um, last week, I was, I was careful last week. I didn't want to rush through the passage. I wanted to take my time. And on Tuesday, our midweek, and I said to the guys, hey, look, I've got a few things I'm ready to kind of teach a couple of things I read in the week I was happy to share does anybody want to talk about anything and everybody said can you just go through and clarify some things from Sunday so I'm glad that we're spending another week just taking our time over this uh, repeating things where necessary I'm very aware um, I think sometimes pastors think well I've said this I don't need to say it again but sometimes things have to be repeated. We have to let concepts kind of just settle gradually in our minds. And as I said before, this is a very difficult passage of Scripture. It's been grace, greatly misunderstood um, by many in the church. And those who, who falsely believe that Christians can lose their salvation, can cease to be Christians, this is one of their favorite passages to point to. So we need to take our time over it, and I make no apologies for that. So uh, let's read through from chapter 6, verse 1, through to verse 8 again. Then we'll pray, and then we'll get back into it. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study Again today, Lord, there will be clarity, clarity of the text, of the, the truth that your Spirit has inspired here, that he might illuminate it in our hearts, that we might understand. Where things are a little more complicated, may the plain truths be clear in our hearts, that we might be in, uh, not be confused, but be clear on what your word is saying. May, Lord, we find here rebuke where necessary. May we find encouragement where necessary. But above all else, may we look upon your Son and may we be transformed once again. May we not go away this day having hardened our hearts, but may we be transformed by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word. For the glory of your Son. Amen. Amen. Okay. Here we go. A little bit more apostasy. Chapter 6 
is dealing, as we've seen from the context and the flow of the passage, it is dealing with the issue of maturity and immaturity. It is dealing with a group of people who are believers. It has been abundantly clear from the beginning of the book that he is preaching to people who are Christians. We'll see that in greater clarity than ever thus far as we progress today. And these Christians are tempted to start to live their lives as if they're not Christians, to go backwards, to take a step back to their previous lives and live as those around them were living. Specifically for them, that would mean a return to temple worship. And a return to temple worship is, would have been a denial, in essence, in practice, of the work of Christ upon the cross. Being involved in the sacrificing of animals when the sacrifice of Christ had come to replace all of that once and for all. He has repeatedly, uh, repeatedly rather, repeatedly over the previous few chapters, pointed to a particular point of uh, Israel's history, the events of Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 12, 13, 14. He's pointed to the point of time where the Israelites came to the brink of the promised land and stood there looking at all that God had promised to give to them and have bottled it because they didn't trust God. And what was abundantly clear then in the Old Testament and also in the application of that in Psalm 95 that he quotes and also in the usage of the passages in Hebrews, it is abundantly clear that the point here is that if you hear the word of God and you harden your heart, then you are like those people. And the implication is, is that there is a danger that you cannot undo the harm that is done by the hardening of your heart. And we'll talk more about that again today. The people in Kadesh Barnea had disobeyed God. They had got out of Egypt, the Red Sea had parted. What a miraculous thing. Could you imagine that? You imagine the sea just parting and lifting up and the waves just stopping and just walking across on dry land. And they saw that. And then they get into the wilderness on the other side and there's no water and they're thirsty. And they come to a place of water and it's bitter. And they say, there's no water for us to drink. God's brought us out here simply to kill us. Get, get your head around that. They walked on dry ground across the Red Sea. And immediately, immediately, they're saying, oh, this is just to kill us. Moses throws the log in, the water ceases to be bitter, it becomes drinkable, and they drink. And they've learnt that they could trust God. Not just from the parting of the Red Sea, but they learnt that they could trust God from the turning of the bitter water into drinkable water. But again, later, they're without water. And so at Meribah, Moses is again confronted with Israelites, saying, oh, God's just brought us here to kill us. And Moses strikes the rock and water comes forth and they learn again that they can trust God. They complain about food. There's no food. And so God provides manna and they learn again that they can trust God. 
So when they come to Kadesh Barnea, they don't have a good track record. They didn't trust him with the bitter water. They didn't trust him at the rock. They didn't trust him for their food. They haven't trusted him. And now there's an opportunity yet again to learn that lesson. Here's the land. Here's everything that's God promised. Now do you trust him? But there's these people. They're really big. They're really mighty. They're really scary. We're going to die. Yeah, it doesn't look good, does it? Didn't look good with the bitter water. Didn't look good at Meribah. Didn't look good when there was no food. It didn't look good. But what happened? Did it look good when the Israelites pursued you and, were, and you were cornered at the Red Sea? And yet what happened? The Red Sea parted, you went through and it came back and drowned them all. Have you not yet learnt to trust God? But something different happened on that day. When they didn't trust God, God came through at the Red Sea. When they didn't trust God, he provided water at Meribah. Provided water where the bitter pool of Marah was. Provided food and manna in the wilderness. Despite their lack of faith, despite not trusting God, God nevertheless provided. And now they're looking at the promised land at Kadesh Barnea and they don't trust God. And does God this time provide for them the promised land? No. He draws a line in the sand and he says, this generation shall not have it. It's over. It's too late. The very next day, they said, I'm sorry, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. Quick, we're going to take the land now. God says, no. It's too late. That opportunity has passed. I know most of you have been here for that. I never get bored of teaching it. I never get bored of saying it again. It's a great reminder. But you have to have that context fresh in your mind to fully understand chapter 6. And when we came at the end of chapter 5, we talked about the importance of maturity, moving on from milk to solid food, being mature in our faith. And specifically in chapter 6 last time, won't want to repeat it all, but just to skim over, there was the teaching that, you know, you don't want to go back to elemental do elementary doctrines. It, he wasn't saying, hey, hey Christians, when you've heard the gospel, you're done with the gospel, move on. Let's start talking about Melchizedek and eschatology. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there are simple doctrines, basic doctrines, elemental, elementary doctrines, foundational doctrines that when you first become a Christian are alien to you. Before you get saved, you don't understand. And then you get them. And when you mature, you get to a point where nobody has to teach you this stuff again. No one has to convince you because it's settled. It's settled in your mind. And he went through issues of repentance and of faith. And when he talks about washings and laying on of hands, he's talking about the washing of the hands of the high priest before he laid hands on the scapegoat who took upon himself the sins of Israel. And he says, you shouldn't be confused about this stuff anymore because you've, been, you've, you've received Christ. Oh, do, we still, do we still have a high priest who washes his hands? Should we still have a scapegoat on the Day of Atonement? No! Jesus is your high priest. 
He was the scapegoat. He took his sins upon, he took your sins upon himself so that you wouldn't have to, just like the scapegoat had done for Israel year after year. This has all been fulfilled in Christ. This shouldn't be an issue for you. This shouldn't be something you wrestle with. It's something that should be settled in your mind. You should not have to go back and deal with this. And the fact that you do have to deal with this means that you can't press on to maturity. And it's in that context then that he said in verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted, uh, who've tasted the uh, heavenly gift that have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now at this point, he says it's impossible for people who, the description here seems to suggest are saved, if they fall away, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. And when you take that in isolation, for many Christians, it seems to suggest that someone who is saved can fall away. They understand that as meaning lose their salvation, not be a Christian. And in that case, they wouldn't be able to come back to faith. But that's not what the passage is saying. And we unpacked it for you a little bit last time. And now we'll go into it in a little bit more depth, some of the areas that we skimmed. And as we do so, we will clarify it. And that context that I've dealt with is so important. But as we start, let me, let me say something that's a little bit complicated. and It's a little bit tricky. But for those who are mature, they might want to hear it. So just bear with me here. But when you study the Bible... You always want to, with a passage, find the main point. And normally, the main point of a passage is the main verb. So if the Bible says, do this, or this happened, or Jesus did this, that's the main point. And what normally happens is there's a bunch of other helping words that give you a bigger, broader picture. But the main verb is the main point. So, for example, if we were to say Jesus loves you because of his covenant love, his great covenant love, then the main point is Jesus loves you. The because tells us the reason why he loves you. It's not because you're cute and cuddly, it's because of his covenant love. So when we have these things, I call them modifiers, they modify the main point. This is a really tricky passage to look at the main point. And part of the reason is that sometimes the, the modifiers, the helping words, aren't as clear in the way that the passage is translated. But here, the main verb is simply, it is impossible. So the main point of the whole of the section from four to six is that it's impossible. Now, certain verbs don't work alone. I am able, well, able to do what? You know, there's certain words that need something else to fill up the meaning. And this is one of those words. Well, impossible to what? Then we go through the passage and there's lots of helping words. Modifiers, have tasted, have shared, have tasted, have fallen away, crucifying. These are all modifying words. The, the, what is actually impossible to do? The word here is to restore. So whatever else 
this passage is saying, the main point of the passage is it's impossible to restore. Impossible to restore. So that we've got to keep in mind, because that's going to help us as we unpack everything else. Now, impossible to restore who? This is our first modifier. Who are these people that it is impossible to restore? Well, let's go through the things that are listed here. There's five things that are descriptions here that essentially are privileges. And these five things are, firstly, they have been enlightened. They have been enlightened. They've believed the truth, they've trusted in the truth, and they've responded. Now, some people, because they don't want the passage to teach that you can lose your salvation, which it doesn't, just keep emphasizing that, but they're scared that it does, they try to make out that these, these modifiers here are, are not people who are saved, that they're people maybe who've been to church, who've been taught the gospel, but they're not really true believers. And we get people like that, don't we? We get people who become religious enough to kind of fit in. People who learn to speak Christianese. People who can get comfortable in a church situation. Maybe they were raised in a church. Maybe they just want, they like the, the social layout of a church. One of the, the most dangerous things about the whole seeker-friendly movement in so many churches is if a church becomes too friendly and too comfortable, if, you know, some of these churches are so desperate not to offend anybody, let's not mention things like the cross and blood in the first few meetings or something like that. If, if you're so bothered about not offending people, you make people too comfortable. You don't want people to get too comfortable. If you think that's how Jesus approached it, <laughs> you want to reread the Gospels. You can have no part of me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yay, Jesus, where do I sign up? You know, I mean, he, he was going out of his way to offend people. Literally. Let's see how many people we could offend so that many will go away. Why? Separating the sheep from the goats. And it is perfectly possible that people get comfortable in church, and then they walk away, and they were never saved. This passage is not talking about those people. If people have been enlightened, that word is routinely used in Scripture to talk about those who are saved. They have seen the truth. They know the truth. That, until this point, could simply mean demons. Demons know the truth, understand the truth. But enlightened is used of those who have received and the truth and responded to it. Secondly, it says that they've tasted the heavenly gift. Notice here, by the way, the word tasted is a word we've already seen in Hebrews a few times. We see that Jesus has tasted death in chapter 2 and verse 9. So when Jesus tasted death, did he just get a front row seat of death? Did he nibble a bit at death? Did he kind of get, get a little bit sick? You know, just, you know, just get a little, little closer to death? No, he died. <laughs> tasted death means he died. So if somebody has tasted the heavenly gift, they haven't just looked at it or heard about it, they have received it. They have experienced the heavenly gift. They've received the gift from heaven, that is salvation. And so uh, they have been enlightened and they've tasted the heavenly gift. And thirdly, they have shared of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you can't lose the Holy Spirit. 
And, and the fact that the Christians can read this passage and think that somehow the people who have shared in the Holy Spirit are no longer Christians simply shows how, how bad the church's doctrine of the Holy Spirit is in this era. Paul is very clear. When you become a Christian, Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, when you believe on the word of the gospel, that God gives you his Holy Spirit and that the giving of the Holy Spirit is a down payment God is saying to you, in giving you his spirit, which he does when you believe, that he guarantees that he is going to fulfill your redemption. He's going to complete it. Or as Romans 8 says, as was read for us last week, that those he calls he justifies, and those he justifies he glorifies. Once you've been justified, once you've received the Holy Spirit, God has stamped you. He's marked you. He said, you are mine, and I give you my word that I will complete my work in you. There is no room for dropouts, for sheep wandering off. There is no place for permanent departure. You have shared of the Holy Spirit, and that is God's guarantee. The next thing listed is, in, uh, the fourth one, is that they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Tasted death meant Jesus had died. Tasted the heavenly gift means you received the heavenly gift. Tasted the goodness of the word of God means you have tasted how wonderful the word of God is. You've experienced it. And here's where the word taste becomes clear in its usage. You know, why not just say, well, you've received the heavenly gift? Why not just say that Jesus has died? Because in the word taste, there's so much more to it. And we see it, I think, clearly, more clearly here. That when we've tasted God's word, we more specifically tasted the goodness of God's word, we've gone, oh, yeah. You know how if you go to um, a restaurant, a nice one, and uh, you have a, a, a nice meal. Maybe it's your common practice to pick up a McDonald's or a, or a Del Taco occasionally, and then you get taken out to a nice restaurant by your, your favorite rich auntie, or it's someone's birthday and you go somewhere nice, and you sit down and you have a meal that a proper chef has properly prepared, and there it is in front of you, and, and, and your taste buds are still, you know, suffering from, from the abuse you've given it the previous week, and you take that mouthful and you go, oh my word, is that food. This is a, re a reoccurring thing that happens with students when they live off basic student food. In England, it was baked beans on toast. I think here, it's, is it ramen noodles? Is that the equivalent? You know, that kind of thing. And then, and then what happens is that, you know, your, your washing is, you know, the dirty washing pile is so huge that you have to go back and see mum. And when you go back, she cooks your favourite meal and you go, oh, food, yes, I remember this. Have you experienced that with the Bible? Because to me, that is one of the greatest signs of someone being a Christian. You know, it's all well and good understanding the Bible. It's all well and good being able to understand the theology of the Bible and to be able to repeat the theology of the Bible. It's perfectly possible for people, get your head around this, who aren't saved to share the gospel to other people and they become saved. 
Shall I say that again? It's possible for people who aren't Christians to understand the gospel, to, to speak the gospel, and for other people to be saved by that. You say, that's crazy. How could you say such a thing? Well, there's Judas. And there you've got the accompanying casting out of demons as well, just to make it even harder for you. But there's something different when you, when you have a biblical truth that you don't just understand, you don't simply, you're not simply just able to repeat it, but when you taste it, your soul just goes, mm, yes, I get that. Oh, isn't that just great? Isn't that just one? There's something in your soul that just resonates and you say, that is good food right there. When you're struggling in your sin and you hear there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus because he's freed us from the power of sin. When the enemy lies to you and tells you that God's angry with you so you keep your distance because you've messed up again. And the Bible reminds you that the wrath of God has been appeased by the blood of his son. You go, yeah, that's just so good. That's food to the soul right there. That, my friends, is for me one of the greatest assurances of salvation. And when you've tasted it, you can't forget it. And you know, you might, you might leave that restaurant and go back to picking up a Del Taco on the way home again. But it doesn't taste as good, does it, the next few days? doesn't taste as good to, to slum it when you've had good food. And of course, that is something that I hope that we all have experienced. And I hope it gives us great assurance. The fifth thing on the list is not only have they tasted um, the, the gifts, and not only have they tasted the goodness of the word of God, but they've also tasted, and this is an interesting one here, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. The word here, powers, is a word that elsewhere is translated miracles. They've tasted in the, the powers of the age to come. Literally, it means wonderful deeds, powerful deeds. And so, um, let's just break this down in context a little bit. These people here have, been ref have had their attention pointed to Kadesh Barnea. It's part of the reason for the whole background I gave you again. Kadesh Barnea. What have you experienced, Kadesh Barnea generation? The Red Sea parting, the angel of death going over before that, all the firstborn dying, fleeing, Red Sea parting. Bitter water becoming drinkable, water coming out of a rock, food on the ground for you every morning. You've experienced all of that. You've tasted the powerful deeds of God. <laughs> In their case, literally, they picked it up and they tasted it. A miracle. And yet they didn't trust. This generation in the book of Hebrews are the generation that were there for the apostles and in many cases for Christ himself as well. They witnessed the stuff. You know, you read the book of Acts and, you know, 
there the apostles are walking down the road and the shadow falls on someone and they're healed, you know, that kind of stuff. They were there for that. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was raised from the dead and he talks about how the people, the apostles, you know, he first appeared to the apostles post-resurrection and then he talks about how 500 of you on one day saw him. Maybe some of those people were there. This is, this is in Jerusalem. These people were. They had tasted the powerful deeds of God. How does someone who maybe even saw Christ, or their friends saw Christ, or the, they heard tales firsthand of what Christ said and did. Maybe they knew some of the apostles, or the apostles' first disciples. They were that close to everything. That close to the wonderful, powerful deeds of God. They'd, they'd seen, they, they tasted the goodness of the word of God. This is a generation that had grown up hearing about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant, and it had all made sense in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a generation who were there when Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing them to Psalm 22. And the fulfillment of Psalm 22 was fulfilled in their midst that day. This is the generation that had been enlightened and had received the gift of the Holy Spirit for the first time. That even after Christ had died, there was still an old covenant time because Jesus had said to the disciples, you wait until the Spirit is given. And there, a little while later, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was given and the church began. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the ministry that had been prophesied in the Old Testament, that had been waited for for generations, the, the Holy Spirit that was, that was the, the indwelling of whom was something that was there in the Old Testament only for the few, the prophet, the priest, the king. And even then, not for the entirety of their ministry necessarily. In Samson's case, he rushed upon him and rushed away again. It's like, oh, I don't want to be near Samson for too long. For Saul, he seemed to be there for longer, but when Saul stumbled into sin, the spirit left. And now we have this new generation, this new time, this new covenant. And we'll talk about this a lot more as Hebrews goes on. That's partly where he's leading. Where the spirit of God is given to everyone who believes. And not as a temporary thing, but as a down payment and guarantee that God will complete his work of redemption. And what you're going to do is you're going to walk away, having experienced all of that, and you're going to go back to a man who is a high priest having to wash his hands so he can lay his hands on a goat to represent the sins of Israel when Israel's Messiah died literally in this generation. Madness. Utter madness. Those are the people that are being referred to here. The people who have tasted all of that and then, despite all of that, have fallen away. 
We talked about this term last time. It's a word that is found only one time in the entire Bible. The word that is normally used of apostasy is not this word. It's a related word. It's not specifically the same. When this phrase is used elsewhere in ancient Greek literature, and I mentioned this last time, it typically means that someone has gotten lost, wandered off. That's what these people are being tempted to do. They're being tempted to having discovered Christ and all that he means to go and live as if they didn't know any of that. There's no implication here that they have ceased to be a Christian. My goodness, when he talks about sharing the Holy Spirit in the context of the New Testament, that means that they can't lose their salvation. Clearly. The one thing that becomes very clear, and I'm kind of going back to the introduction many months ago now, but one thing that's very clear in the book of Hebrews is that, though I don't believe it was written by Paul, almost everybody agrees that whoever did write the book or was involved in writing the book was a disciple of Paul's. There's so much connection to Paul's theology, written very differently, but there's a lot of connection to it. There's no way that you have even the vaguest understanding of Paul's theology and somehow think that you can lose your salvation. That's not what's being said here. It's talking about Christians who have saved and have experienced all of those blessings and then somehow get lost, wander off, get distracted, compromise. They're the people being referred to. So back to the main point of this section. What's the main verb? For these people, the modifiers have told us who these people are, it's impossible for them to be restored. Now, we'll come to, to repentance in a minute. That's, uh, that's another modifier. But it's impossible for them to be restored. And I emphasized this last time. You can't have a Groundhog Day as a Christian. There's two sides to this. Listen, and this is kind of where I ended last time. There's two sides to it. On the one hand, his mercies are new every morning. As Christians, we always begin today. We have no other choice. You messed up yesterday, we'll start again today. You can't start again yesterday unless you have a time machine, which I'm guessing you don't. So, so you, you have to start now. You have to start there. It's all you can do. And is God's mercy real for you today if you messed up yesterday? Absolutely it is. Embrace his mercy. Embrace his forgiveness. Rejoice in the appeasing of God's wrath that he is not angry for, with you for what you did yesterday. And start again today. But the other side of the coin is you don't get to do yesterday again. Yesterday's gone. When Joel talks about restoring the years, the locusts have eaten, that's not what he's talking about. You don't get to turn back time. Cher was wrong. You can't turn back time. You can't have a do-over. It doesn't happen. It's gone. And we're going to talk more about the specifics of that in a minute. But I just want us to understand that what this passage is saying is, look, if, if you are one of these people who, who, who is saved, You've tasted the gift. You've experienced the goodness of the word of God. You've seen the, 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 the deeds of God. You have all of this on your plate. And then you turn back. You don't get restored to repentance. Repentance is changing your mind. 
But the, the word repentance here, I think, has distracted people too much because the emphasis in the text is not to repentance, unto repentance is, is a modifier. The point here is it's not possible to be restored. You don't get to fix everything. Listen, if you, if you are somebody who commits sexual sin, does God forgive that sin? Absolutely he forgives that sin. Of course he forgives that sin. Does he still love you? Of course he still loves you. Do you get, do you get to start afresh? Of course you do. But you don't get to undo the effects. You don't get, if you get pregnant, you don't miraculously become unpregnant. You're left with consequences, and there's consequences to our sins within our soul, with our witness. How it affects us, how we think, how we operate, because you know what we do when we sin? We have two choices. Every time you sin, you have two choices. You repent or you double down. That's it. You don't get to stand still. You repent or you double down. And if you choose to fall away, if you choose to wander off, if you choose to disobey God, there are consequences. Because if you don't repent, you keep doubling down, you double down, you double down. And it becomes easier to go back and commit the same sins again. There's sins that you look at in the distance, you say, oh, I'd never do that. But when you commit the first sin and then the next sin and the next sin, suddenly those sins that were in the distance get closer. And it becomes easier to fall in other areas. And so it is. I want us to hear the warning of Hebrews so clearly. You don't get to restore. You can, he's not saying you don't get to repent. It does not say it's impossible for that person to repent. You wander off, you can repent. You can always repent. You can always come back to God. It's never too late. Come back to God. If you've wandered away, come back. I beg you. It's never too late to repent. But restoration is another matter altogether. I said it before. If you're 20 years old, you get distracted by the world like so many do at that age. How many people I've known in my own life personally, raised in the church, genuinely saved, tasted the goodness of the word of God, went to Bible studies and went, oh, it's just so good. That's better than anything the world has to offer. And then got distracted and wandered off that person gets pulled back 25, 30, 35, 40. You don't get those years back. And the harm that you do to yourself and to others, you don't get back. And I hate it when people in pulpits suggest otherwise. You don't get it back. You don't get restoration in that sense. And look why. Look at why. 
is impossible those who fall away to restore them again to repentance unto repentance so it's in repenting it's involved in turning around turning back but it's the restoration that can't happen why since they are crucifying once again the son of god to themselves literally to their own harm we'll come to that in a minute and holding him up to contempt what it's saying here is this it's saying that um well literally let's 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 see the modifiers as they are it's impossible to restore them again crucifying once again the son of god to themselves it's impossible to restore them crucifying again listen when you first get saved the crucifixion of the son of god is applied to you and your sins and you're all cleansed from your sin your, your eyes are enlightened for the first time you get to see your sins are forgiven you don't get that again the rock doesn't get struck twice he doesn't get re-crucified when your eyes are enlightened when you have the spirit in you if you then go to live a certain way it's different than when you lived that way before it's not the same thing do you understand that when you sinned before you were saved you may have been ignorant that it was a sin maybe you did know it was a sin but you did it anyway but that's not the same thing as having your eyes opened repenting as a sinner coming to Christ and then going back to sin because you have to quench the Holy Spirit you have to deny in your deeds and in your thinking what's happened what Christ has done what he's accomplished there isn't a re-crucifying you don't get that or oh, I'll live like I'm not a Christian and then I'll come back to be a Christian again it doesn't happen it can't happen because Christ isn't going to be re-crucified -re he's there once for all done you don't get to say oh well I'm a Christian but you know what I'm really I really feel like I'm missing out so I'm going to go and be a non-Christian for a bit but I know that the blood of Christ covers all sins so I'll, I'll come back at some point no you don't you don't get to do that what, you don't get to come back no you can come back if God leads you but don't presume that you can because if you do come back all the harm that you have done remains the damage to yourself the loss of those years it's all none of that gets changed there's effects for every single sin and none of it gets taken away and yet because he is not re-crucified because there isn't that moment where we go oh, my eyes are open I couldn't see before your eyes have been open the whole time the whole time that you've fallen away your eyes have been open you've been quenching the spirit it's a completely different dynamic and you know what you have no idea when your Kadesh Barnea is maybe you're at Meribah maybe there's no water and you're not trusting God to provide and maybe he's going to strike the war, the rock and you're going to drink hallelujah you get to trust him next time there gets to be a next time
But maybe you're at Kadesh Barnea. And maybe this time, maybe this time is the time that's the last time, the last opportunity. When you've been a Christian for a while and you've seen people walk this road, it becomes very real. Someone um, very dear to me who, when I was growing up, remember leading this person to church. I think it was a friend who ultimately led this person to the Lord. I wasn't the one who shared the gospel, but they came to church with me and got saved. And I remember looking across and seeing them arms aloft in worship and just my heart just being so happy to see that this person was now a Christian as well. Then school finished, college, university came, liberal theology, academics saying, are you sure? Did God really say? A downward spiral of bad doctrine. I remember one day confronting this person and saying, you don't believe that anymore? Do you not believe the Bible is the word of God? And just being, just stunned at how far they've fallen. And I remember, because it's the issue of salvation. Do you believe that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead? I'm not sure anymore. Couldn't deny that one. Maybe a glimpse of the Holy Spirit smothered and quenched and hidden below, but wasn't convinced, wasn't sure. Elementary doctrines that should never have been wrestled with again. Back to square one. And this person still calls themselves a Christian, goes to church, but not a church that teaches the Bible, not a church that would affect your lifestyle, very liberal, very fitting in with the world, and what that person could have and should have accomplished for Christ has been thrown away and wasted. And I have seen that same story again and again and again and again. You want to compromise? Don't be stupid. You have no idea if you're at Meribah or Kadesh Barnea. But either way, you can't undo the decisions that you make. And look at this last thing here in this verse. Holding him up to contempt. Literally, put him to open shame. The word here, it's one word in the Greek, it's a word that was used to mean make an example of someone. It was used often in the context of mocking somebody. In other words, permit me a loose paraphrase to punch it home to you. You're making Christ look stupid. Because when 
you become a Christian and you say, I'm a Christian. And when you go to church and you invite your friends to church, and when you get baptized and people see you get baptized, when you become part of the Christian community, when you share your faith with people, when all of that happens, when you then fall away, when you compromise, when you justify your sin, everybody sees that. And you make a mockery of Christ. When, listen, when your eyes are first opened, you see something for the first time. This is what you see. You see that you're a sinner. And you see that the only hope for you in your sin is the blood of Christ. That he makes you right before God and he deals with the issue of your sin. That this life that you've lived to this point was wrong. It was bad. It was sinful. And that you are turning from that and you're turning to a new life. You're a new creation. You're not what you were anymore. And you do it in the power of Christ because of the gospel. And then the next year, you're living like it's a lie. That's the context, by the way, as we said when we talked through the book of Ephesians. Where it talked about that and it says, don't lie to one another. Therefore, having put away your falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. In the context of Ephesians 4, that is not saying, hey, don't tell fibs to your neighbour. What it's saying is, is you are a representation of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you lie. Don't you lie to your neighbour. Jesus has forgiven me my sins, but I can't overcome this one. This is sinful, but hey, what could you do? Jesus is everything. Yeah, I'm having a bad time right now. Don't lie to about Christ. Because the word Christian was first given to Christians at Antioch. And it means little Christs. We are associated with him. That's what we, we have in our baptism service. For those of you who knew and don't know, underneath those flowers there, there's actually a baptism pool. And anyone who's not been baptized, you can be baptized. We'll baptize you if your faith is in Christ. And what happens is I put you under the water and it represents the association that you have with the death of Jesus Christ. That when he died, you died. Because he is in you. That you are one, that you are united, that you are in Christ. Your old man is dead, he's gone. And hopefully I lift you back up again. Because there's new life. Resurrection. When he rose from the dead, you rose with him. You are associated with Christ. You are part of him and he is part of you. And he indwells you by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so what you do when you walk away, when you compromise, is you shame him. You make a mockery of him. You say, what I told you was true isn't true. What you do, ultimately, is you lie about the gospel. Four, here's your explanation of all that's just gone. For land 
that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Okay? Let's look at the picture here. You have land. The rain has fallen on the land and there's often rain falling upon it. And then there's a crop that is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. I've told you this a million times, not going to apologize for the million and one. Let's repeat it again. Everyone who is saved has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables you all to have gifts. He, he gifts each one of us. Not one person has all the gifts and every person has at least one gift. We're united because we all have the same spirit, but we rely upon one another because we all have different gifts. And here's the point. Who are your gifts for? Not for you. They're for everybody else. Keep telling you that. Ephesians 4, it's clear as day. So when you fall away, when you compromise, when you wander off, when you're... When you're faith is lukewarm when your commitment is partial who loses out we all do there's no crop that's coming up which we're all supposed to eat from read again ephesians 1 Read from the beginning of Ephesians 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, and see how he talks about the blessings that we have in Christ, and how he says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He redeemed us by the blood of his Son, and he's given us his Spirit as a down payment. And when he comes to the end of that whole section, though he reminds us that we're saved by faith and not by works, so that no one should boast, he then says immediately afterwards, but you're saved for works that were prepared beforehand, when's the beforehand? When you were called and chosen before the beginning of time? That were prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. And I've told you so many times that there is a purpose to our lives and a purpose to our existence because God says, I'm having you because there's something that's ready for you and you alone to do. And what, the world comes calling and you wander off and you go back to the old life and your old ways and you think, well, you know, it's my life, it's my choice, it's my decisions. No, it's not. It's not your life. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. And you're bringing shame to him. And you were bought for the sake of others who you are now letting down while you go and satisfy yourself with fool's gold that's only going to ultimately harm you as well because, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, near to, not quite, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. If there's land that is cursed, that is outside the blessings of God altogether, then it is cursed. You know, there's land here that's near to being cursed. It looks like it should be cursed. It's not cursed, but it looks that way. But it is burnt. And when everybody else who's not a Christian, and they have their sin and they go before God, there is burning. We as Christians, we are forgiven for our sin, but they're still burning. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. 
all the gifts working together. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, you don't get to build anything unless you start with Jesus Christ. In other words, what follows is only true for people who are Christians, okay? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, builds on Christ, builds on their salvation, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, become revealed. We saw that, didn't we? The sword revealing, the word of God revealing. It will become revealed for the day, the day of the Lord, day of judgment will disclose, disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test which sort of work each one has done if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he'll receive award reward rather if anyone's work is burned up and he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but as only through fire Every good deed you do, ah, maybe good deed is not the word, that sounds like you're helping some old lady cross the road. Every, every time you're obedient to God's word, every time you place your trust in him, there's reward. There's reward. And when you trust God, you're still not perfect. Every good thing we do is tainted by our sinful nature. And you know what happens to those, those, those good things that we do? They are, burnt, they are burnt and purified by fire so that all tainting of our sin is removed and we get to take those rewards with us into eternity. Every mistake we make, every time we compromise, it's burnt up. Now, we still are saved, but only as through fire. Come on, we're Californians, we understand that. Every year we see the news stories of California fires that rage around. Got a couple of friends who are firemen. And so on my social media, I see them being carted off here and there and fighting this fire and fighting that fire. Crikey, it was only last year when the fires got to within about a mile and a half of where I live. We're, we know of the fires around here, don't we? And sometimes those fires, despite the great efforts of the firemen uh, the, who, who, who work hard to try and protect properties, sometimes houses catch fire. And everything that you had in that house is lost. Burnt up, it's gone. That's the picture Paul's painting in 1 Corinthians 3. That you basically, you go through life and you're like a person after a wildfire. No insurance, no backup, nothing left but the clothes on your back. You don't get the time back. The decisions you make affect your future. Do you think that at Kadesh Barnea it was just like, oh, well, you know, what a surprise. We, we, made, we messed up just today. We messed up. No, you messed up at Kadesh Barnea because you messed up at Meribah. You messed up before. You messed up before. You messed up before. And you created a habit pattern that you were stuck in. Just this one time is a lie because what you do is you feed your flesh and you make it stronger. And so, yeah, I know it's a 
horrible sermon to hear, isn't it? It's a harsh sermon. But this is our text. We don't get to hide from these passages. And just to wrap it up and to sum it up one last time, what he's saying is this. You've got to move on. These issues of compromise should have been settled long ago. You're supposed to mature, but you're not mature. And the result of this is, th is this, is, and you've got to understand it and hear it. It's impossible when you mess up and wander off for you to be restored as if it didn't happen. The shame you bring to Christ, the harm you bring to yourself, and the loss of reward that you have for all eternity, it cannot ever be undone. I stand here today and I'm, I'm approaching middle age, as they call it. I think if, if I'm middle age now, I'm, I'm probably doing quite well. I'm 40, I don't know, I'm 45, I think. So like 90, that'll do me nicely. That's halfway. That's good. I'm happy with that. You know what? I've got, I've got my son here who's like 15. I remember being 15 like it was yesterday. Remember who I hung out with, what I did, what I was thinking, what I believed, places I went. I remember it all like it was vivid. Some of you before me are somewhat older than I am. I bet you remember childhood, I bet you remember things, I bet life, life is, is a breath. You know, you're, you're, you're a child and you think, this is just going to go on forever. Man, look at that person, he's 30, he's like really old. And then you become 30. And then you look at people who are 30 and think, are you old enough to be a policeman? Life just goes... And the decisions we make last for eternity. Restoration is impossible. Follow Christ today. Make the decision. When you hear the word of God today, do not harden your hearts like those in Kadesh Barnea. Let's hear the warning of Hebrews and let's together make that commitment to walk with him and to not turn away. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you for your word, Lord. <clears throat> Personally, I love preaching the passages that bear good news, lift my soul, tell me the wondrous deeds you've done. But I need to hear this as well. Because the devil lies to us all tempts us to wander off just for a bit just to compromise on this just to not trust on that look how mighty they are look how big they are we couldn't possibly defeat them we can't possibly accomplish this we just got to take it into our own hands lord may the compromising of our hearts cease this day we might not have all the solutions but may we not harden our hearts May we bow before you and say, God, help us. I don't know how you're going to help us. I don't know how you're going to solve this problem. Change my heart. Help me out of this situation. But I place my trust in you. May we mature. May we grow up. May we move on. And may we never bring you to shame. Amen. Amen.